In January 2009, as the financial crisis that enveloped our country loomed menacing above us, I attended a denominational meeting. We usually begin the year in Puerto Rico with a ministerial meeting. And in one of the breaks, a fellow pastor asked me, how was my local congregation bracing for the crisis? How we were going to face it? What were our plans to deal with it? And I told her our plans, and that plan, our main plan was to triple our outreach budget. At the time, we had a $5,000 allowance to help the community. So we jacked it up to $15,000 a year. She was surprised by my answer, and she told me that in her congregation, they had decided to eliminate the outreach budget that amounted to about 10% of the expenditures of the church. And I, I was saddened by that, and I said, she doesn't understand the law of blessing. Have you ever seen the law of blessing? Have you ever read the law of blessing? If you go to Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, and he teaches him the law of blessing. I will bless anybody who blesses you. I will curse anybody who curses you. And you will be a blessing to all the nations. It's very simple. God blesses the one who blesses. Is that simple? Is that simple? But that congregation didn't understand that, so in January 2010, we met again at the same ministerial workshop. And she asked me, how were your finances this year? And I had to say, we barely made it. But we did. On the very, very last Sunday of the year, we reached our budget goals. And she said, well, we didn't. So my salary has been slashed for 10%. See, that what happened. When you bless, God blesses you. When you don't bless people, God stops blessing you. It's in the scripture. We had the same ministerial meeting in January 2012 as in January 2011. But my fellow minister didn't participate in any of those meetings because she left ministry. Frustrated. Frustrated. After not being able to face the crisis. Why did my fellow minister have such a rough time addressing the financial crisis that rocked not only our churches but our country as a whole? You can answer that in a myriad ways, but I'm convinced that part of the problems in the way in which the church is managed stems out of a theological problem. Let me say that again. 
Our theology guides our management. Every time that a church allots a dollar, it's making a theological decision. And if you don't understand the character of God and the purpose of the church, then your management is not going to reflect the values of the kingdom of God. And somehow we have divided management and theology, church teaching, and church administration. And that only breeds misunderstandings. And these misunderstandings are widespread. For example, years ago, in 2000, I attended a new church meeting. That was before the new push for a new church came up. And that meeting was in Atlanta. I was one of the speakers. And I remember that in one of the activities of the, of the whole training sessions, one of the workshops, the resource person asked each one of the pastors of those new congregations, what would they say to enthuse people to come to their congregation? Usually, when they invited some people over to church, what would they say? Come and visit my church because. Some answered that they stressed the enthusiasm of the congregation. It's a new church. People are full of enthusiasm. Other people said, we use contemporary music. We have a rock band. We have contemporary worship. Other people highlighted the quality of the teaching and the preaching, saying that it was excellent preaching, excellent teaching. And still others indicated that the main reason was you should come to my church because we are a loving church. We're really a family where we love and support each other. None, not one of the ministers present at that workshop mentioned the word God in their answer. Not one said, come to my church because I need you to learn something about God. Not one of them said, come and worship God with us. Not one of them mentioned God as the centerpiece of their ministry. They simply highlighted our differences with other congregations, pointing out to music, preaching, teaching, outreach, enthusiasm, or church dynamics. And I sometimes wonder why is the church so silent about God? Are we ashamed of talking about God? Or do we believe that everybody knows about God already, so we need just to highlight the garnishes and not the, central, the centerpiece? These two illustrations point to the main concern that I have 
regarding the future of the church in America. If God is absent from our discourse, maybe God will be absent of our church in total. If we stop talking about God and about God's character, what then is the purpose of our church? I think that some of us have forgotten that the main purpose of the church is to announce God's character. We need to tell the world that God is. I have a, a couple of engineers in my church. They're married to each other. And uh, these, these are highly educated people. And one of them came up to me and said, Pastor, I just learned something important this morning at worship. And I said, well, Tanya, what, what is it? And she said, that the, for, the, the phrase God is, is a full sentence on, in and of itself. God doesn't need a predicate. God is, is a full and complete sentence. Just saying that God is, is enough. You see, when she said that, she was telling me, I've learned something about God's character. I've learned something about God. And in the church, we are called to talk about God in order to teach people how to know God. We need to proclaim God's mighty acts, some of which are really small for other people. But for those who receive God's love, even a very small gesture, can be a very mighty act. As when somebody who's sick receives a visit from church, and some people are coming there not only to pray for you, but also to bring food. When you have nothing in the pantry, that is a very mighty act. Even that for the world, it might be a very small one. So in that sense, we as a church need to get to the business of proclaiming who God is and stressing God's character. Because the main purpose of the church is to proclaim God's character. Who is God? Who is this God that we're preaching about? What are the important things for God? What is important for God? What is pleasing to God? God wants to be in a relationship with humanity? Great. Why? What are God's purposes for humanity? In short, the church needs to proclaim what is God's character as it's revealed in the Bible, particularly in the gospel, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. You may understand my point better. We compare our relationship with God 
to our relationship with one another. When you say that you know someone, I know John, you're saying that you know the character of that person. Knowing somebody is much more than knowing where does that person work, lives, or being able to recognize a photograph. When you say that you know someone, it's because you have a personal relationship with that person, and you can talk about that person's character, and you can say, that is out of character, because I know that person. When you know someone, you know if that person is patient or impatient, passive or active, merciful or selfish. You know that. By the same token, a person who knows God should be able to talk about God's character. And Christians should be able to identify the, the divine traits. We must be able to affirm that God is good. God is patient. God is merciful. God is honest. God is just. God is cheerful and even playful. God is kind. Some will ask, how can you know God's character? And the obvious answer for us is that we know God's character through the biblical witness. Scriptures revealed who God is. Because the scripture tells us the story of God. When you read the Hebrew Bible and you see how God time and again, time and again, time and again saved the people of Israel and intervened on their behalf, even liberating them from captivity, not only from Egypt but also from Babylon. That teaches you who God is. When you read the Gospels and you see Jesus, Jesus is the human face of God. And every time that Jesus reaches out to a child, a woman in need, a person considered a sinner, the Bible is teaching you about God's character, who God is. And maybe the text that summarizes God's character in the whole of Scripture is John 3.16. You know it by heart. I know it by heart. Let's read it anyway. It says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. The word of the Lord. This text makes a central theological assertion about God. God loved the world. Loving here is much more than a feeling. Loving is 
a plan for the deliverance, for the salvation of the world. God acts in order to save the world because the world is menaced by the forces of death and evil. And God acts in order, intervenes in order to save the world from condemnation. Now the Gospel of John, if you have your Bible in John 3, you can follow me there. The Gospel of John uses the language of light and darkness as metaphors to speak about salvation and condemnation. Beginning on verse 19, John explains this dynamic of salvation and condemnation. And he says, I'm reading from the common English Bible. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world and the people loved darkness more than the light for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it may be seen that their actions were done in God. So, condemnation means a conscious, deliberate rejection of the light. God so loved the world that God wanted to send the divine light to the world in order to save from darkness. Saving the world implies giving light to the world and Jesus is the light of the world. Now another trait of the Gospel of John when you read the, the whole Gospel of John, you will see that usually when John speaks about the world, the Greek word cosmos, John uses it in a negative way. Don't love the world. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, affliction. Don't act as those in the world. And then... Here you find that God loves the world. John uses the word world in two different ways. On the one hand, the world is not only the physical world, but humanity in general. But on the other hand, the world cosmos, in Greek, world, is also a reference to the way things are, the order of things. So when John speaks negatively about the world, the Bible is not condemning the trees or the grass or the little rabbits that you see there in the spring, but the order of the world, the values of the world. And then you see that the Bible has unabashedly a way 
of stating that you have to make a decision between the values of the world and the values of the kingdom because they're not the same. The order of the world, the world order, is organized on the basis of the darkness and of the values of the darkness. So, you can kill somebody else just because you can. Then Jesus proclaims the light and the values of the light affirming the value of life. In that sense, in spite of all the negative connotations of the world, world, of the word for world, in spite of all the negative connotations that the concept of world has in the Gospel of John, John makes this radical affirmation that God still loves the world. And that God is invested in saving the world. Now John 3.16 also describes those who believe as receiving eternal life by virtue of God's love. And you know the difference between something that is quantifiable, that you can count, and something that is qualitative. Is that when you speak about that, you're talking about quality. Well, eternal life has a quantitative aspect to it. It's life that doesn't end. So in that sense, there you have days and seconds and years and eons. But mainly in the Bible, eternal life refers mostly to the quality of life and not to the quantity of life. Eternal life is not only that you're not going to die ever or that whenever after, after dying you're going to keep on living somehow. Eternal life means that you share in God's character. You share in God's life. You identify with God's purposes. You're one with that loving God. And that in every action that God takes on behalf of the world, you participate. Because you're part of the body. And you are part of this movement of light that comes from the heart of God. God's action is simultaneously an action of salvation. And I know people don't like to hear this, but it's also judgment. You need to understand this. Sometimes in church we want to preach grace without preaching judgment. And that's impossible. Because every word that you may say refers to its negative correlate. I know it's too early in the morning to be using those big words. And it, but let me tell you this. 
Every time that you say light, you raise the possibility of darkness. Every time that you say love, you raise the possibility of hate. Every time that you say salvation, you raise the possibility of condemnation. Why does the world need to be saved? Because the world is in danger. That's why. We need to be saved because the world is in danger of being lost. People need to be saved because without divine intervention, their lives are going to be wasted and they're going to be condemned. In that sense, condemnation is not only something that's going to happen sometime in the future. Condemnation is something that happens here and now. A friend of mine took to go took to preach at the red light district in San Juan. You know San Juan is a big city in the Caribbean and in every big city you have a red light district where people go to seek uh, sexual favors, drugs, alcohol. And he was appalled because he was speaking with one of the women who works on the sex trade and he said to her you know if you, if you keep on doing this you're going to go to hell and she reacted negatively and he said that to me as an example of how callous that woman was and I said well the problem is that you forgot something she lives already there She lives already there. She has to wake up in the morning and sell herself in order to make a few bucks to raise her family at the same time that she is abused by a pimp. And you talking to her about hell? She's already in hell. What she needs is a word from God that may deliver her from hell. So in that sense, this salvation that we announce on the basis of John 3.16 is not a future salvation. It's a salvation that begins here and now. Let me put it another way. Remember what we just heard, what we just read about light and darkness? Salvation means that God turns on, turns on the light now. No, not after you die. So you can transform your life on the basis of the gospel beginning today. And you begin to enjoy the blessedness of the gospel. And the eternal life that God gives here and now on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice for the world. <coughs> In that sense, we need to understand that 
just as life in the present can reflect the salvation of Jesus Christ, so also life in the present can reflect the darkness of the forces of death. And we need to understand that this is not something to be manipulated. On the contrary, this is something to be proclaimed in order to help people be delivered from the influence of the forces of death. And I keep on referring to these forces of death. Sin leads the human being to destroy him or herself. The network of people who love them and everything they find around them. Sin is a self-destructive force. Sin leads you to destroy yourself. Last Sunday, last Saturday, I was hearing an interview with a man who spoke, who wrote a book about drug addiction recovery. And he says in that book that he had become one of the hottest literary agents in New York. He was riding high. He had more money than ever. He was very young and he had been incredibly successful. He had a partner who loved him, friends, family, wealth, success. And one day he walked into the office and said to his business partner, the business is now yours. And he went on a two-month-long drug binge. And he has blanked out, so he doesn't know exactly where he spent those days. He doesn't he, he, does, he, he does not remember all the drugs he did. The thing is that after that was two months, he had lost. destroying yourself, you destroy all those who love you. God so loved the world that God sent His only begotten Son in order to save the world from self-destruction. In sum, John 3.16 speaks eloquently about God's character. First of all, it affirms that God loves the world. And that is a concept that is further elaborated in 1 John chapter 4, where you have the bold assertion that God is love. Second, John 3.16 affirms that God is merciful, given that God sent his only son to save humanity from the bondage of the forces of sin, uh, of sin 
evil and death freely. Nobody compelled God to do it. God just do, did it on the basis of his love for humanity. And third, John 3.16 affirms that God, the Christian God, the God that is proclaimed in the Hebrew Bible and the Second Testament is the God of life. It's a God that wants you to live. The same God that in Deuteronomy said, I am placing before you blessing and life, curse and death, choose life. It's the same God that in Jesus Christ proclaims God's love for humanity, for the world, and God's desire to save the world. This short biblical verse teaches us so many things about God because it points to the character of God. And it says something very important about God is that God is the missionary God. And I have a witness to that. God is a missionary God. Sometimes we speak about the mission of the church, and that is a misnomer. The church has no mission in and of itself. God has a mission. God has the mission of saving this world, and we as a church could be the best partners of God in that mission, or be totally absent from it. God's mission is to save the humanity that was once lost. God's mission is to save humanity from the influence of the forces of death and sin. God wants to take all those forces that lead to self-destruction, to destroy others, and to destroy creation itself, and get them out of the way. Because they belong to the darkness. To turn on the light. And to bring us to the power of salvation, which is the power of life and blessing. John 3.16 presupposes that evil is real and that the world is a very dangerous place when you walk in darkness. But it also presupposes that the humanity, that the human being, that we need God's divine intervention in order to overcome it. In that sense, the church needs to be unabashedly theological. I once participated in one of our beloved church meetings, and uh, they got a bunch of old ministers like me to talk to people who were in college, many of them thinking about going to ministry. I was the last speaker. Every one of we, the old ministers, had about three or four minutes to enthuse the students. All of the people who spoke before me told them, you can do it. You have it in you. You can do it. 
my turn, I stood up there and said, uh, I, I hate to disagree, but you cannot do it. Not alone. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do it. Now with God on your side, or when you're in the sight of God, then you can do wonderful things. But you cannot get your theology from Jiminy Cricket. I go to a whole bunch of churches and I hear Jiminy Cricket in the pulpit. If you wish upon a star, you wish comes through. And I don't preach that. What I preach is that I can do all things in Jesus Christ who sent the thing. When the church walks away from the theological view of life, we end up sounding like Jimmy Cricket. It's important then to stress the power of God and God's desire to deliver humanity from the grip of evil. Jesus of Nazareth teaches us how to live fully acting in ways that please God, serving the needy, and becoming mature Christians. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the risen Christ is present among us, saving the human race, healing the human race. The divine presence is the element that empowers us to resist, to endure, to confront, and even to unmask the forces of death. And to denounce the persons and institutions that serve as instruments of death in our midst. But in order to do that, you need to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must remember then that when we speak about God's mission, and about God as a missionary, what we are really saying is that God has taken the initiative. God has taken the first step. God is the one who revealed divine grace through the history of Israel. God is the one who sent Jesus Christ. God is the one who empowers us through the power of the Holy Spirit. God is the one who calls the church to be and, to call, and, and calls the church to be a partner in the divine mission for saving salvation. God is the main missionary. We're just the help. The church has no reason to be in and of itself without God. The main responsibility of the Christian church is to announce, to proclaim God's character to a broken world. We have the responsibility of proclaiming that the God of life wants to save a world that is enslaved by the forces of death. And this is why I find the silence about God so disturbing. From 98 to 2000, I was a professor of homiletics at an Episcopalian seminary in Texas, teaching in English. And uh, it was funny because they said, well, you're a disciple. Yeah. Disciples are great preachers. You, know, you have uh, Fred Craddock, and you have Ron Allen, you have Joey Jeter. You're a disciple, you should be a, a, a wonderful teacher of homiletics. And I went like, uh, okay. 
Well, y'all are disciples, I'm great, I'm going to take it. And I had in my class a young woman who had left a wonderful career in art in order to become an Episcopalian priest. She had a master's on fine arts. I think it was from Brown University. It was one of them Ivy League universities. She had been curator of a museum in a major city. And she had walked away from that in order to become an Episcopalian priest. So I'm in the class of homiletics. I'm telling them about the different kinds of sermons, the different emphasis of preaching. And I spoke about the evangelistic sermon. And she said, well, you know, that sounds backwards to me. I am not going to be the kind of minister that calls people to faith. All the time. So I looked to her with love and I said, well, let me tell you something. If you are not willing to call people to faith, Walmart is looking for associates. You're in the wrong business. Because the business of the church is to call people to faith. We don't have any other business. Because everything we do is based on that business. It's based on the assertion that God is. If you want to have a church that's afraid about speaking to everyone about God, then you don't have a church. She looked at me and said, I never thought that becoming a priest implied talking about God. And after she said that out loud, everybody laughed. And she realized how ludicrous her statement was. If the church doesn't speak about God, who's going to do it? The center of our discourse is the character of God. Friendship with God implies participation in God's mission. Our faith teaches us that God wants to save and to change the world. Faith leads to action. Our outreach and mission plans demonstrate our values. They're supposed to be clear manifestations of our theology. You remember my initial story about this church and this pastor who in 2009 as they were bracing for the financial crisis that ensued decided to eliminate all health and all outreach to the needy because they understood that that was the way 
to protect the church's finance, they were not alone. Many, many churches in the face of crisis opt for survival instead of mission. They begin to act out of fear, not out of love. And in doing that, they don't realize that they're choosing darkness over light. The church budget must be a clear manifestation of the values and priorities of your church. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be, in Matthew 6.21. In that sense, when a local congregation or a judicatory or a denomination chooses survival over ministry, they have decided to die. Jesus chose to sacrifice his life in order to give light. God did, didn't send Jesus to the earth in order for him to survive. Jesus could have survived very, easy, very easily. Standing up there and saying, I'm not the Messiah. Nope. Uh, I recant everything I said. I pledge my allegiance to the emperor. He would have, he would have walked away. But Jesus didn't act out of survival instincts. He acted out of a mission that was impelling him to give his life in order to demonstrate the love of God for the world. The task of the church is to proclaim this love. The task of the church is to share the divine missionary ministry, stressing the divine love for the lost humanity. Let us then ponder, more than ponder, accept, more than accepting, embrace God's invitation. God invites us to preach that He is our loving missionary God. God invites us to announce the divine character to the world, a world that is so confused by so many idols. God invites us to know Him deeper to develop a deeper understanding of God in every moment of our life. God invites us to consecrate our lives, to know and to announce the God that so loved the world.